Welcome to Table Scraps, a production of Table Talk Radio. I'm Evan Giglin. It's been a while since we've done one of these, but we have a good one in store for you today. Uh, I remember at my first Winkle as a, uh, a, a pastor of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, um, a, a, a pastor there at the Winkle told me, uh, the church exists for those who are not yet here. And I took pause and tried to figure that out, and um, I came to the conclusion that that is uh, wrong, uh, that the church exists to forgive, uh, get, to give the forgiveness of sins to sinners, both the sinners who are gathered there and also uh, to proclaim it to those who are not gathered there. Uh, so the church uh, does both. Uh, but ever since then, we've been, we've been told all kinds of different phrases that are foreign to uh, the language of Holy Scripture, uh, foreign to... Um, classical theology, uh, things like uh, a missional communities, things like uh, vision casting, uh, a small community of small groups and a, a and cellular uh, community. That's the discussion of today. Where does this language and the church growth movement, the emergent church, come from? What is uh, what is the the nature of of this movement? And uh, to talk with us about that is Chris Roseborough. Chris Roseborough is the host of the internet radio program, Fighting for the Faith, and captain of Pirate Christian Radio at piratechristianradio.com. Welcome, Chris Roseborough. Thanks for having me back, Evan. All right, what's the relationship uh, in the in the seeker-purpose-driven uh, church? What's the relationship between uh, that church and doctrine? Well, um, that's kind of an interesting question. And the reason why it's difficult to answer is is because normally when you think of churches throughout history, even different denominations, there's been a core understanding that the Bible has revealed something, it's God's Word, and that and doctrine is just basically a, a teaching, what what the Bible teaches. And the idea the reason why there's different denominations is because uh, there's arguments as to how to understand what God has revealed in His Word. But along has come the seeker-driven movement, um, and this is seen in the, uh, the, the purpose-driven movement, the Bill Hybels, Willow Creek Association, Bob Buford's Leadership Network, and their relationship to doctrine is pretty much, who cares? It doesn't matter. It, uh, all of that stuff that has to do with the... Uh, with you know clouds and heaven and the by and by has no bearing whatsoever on making a difference in people's life here and now and so their 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 focus on doctrine is pretty much they're anti-doctrinal we need to stop talking about these things and get busy somehow meeting the needs and felt needs and helping uh, of, of people here and now and helping them transform their lives and make life here on earth better for them okay to understand this animal, maybe we should start philosophically. Where do we start the, in the philosophical understanding of, of, of this whole movement? Yeah, and that's, that's a good way of putting it. This is a philosophical worldview that we're dealing with here, and it's an anti-rational or irrational worldview um, that has is its, you know, its epistemological genesis and its you know, philosophical underpinnings. The epistemology that was put together by a philosopher of the 18th century by the name of Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant was a Lutheran pietist who, in his reaction to the Enlightenment, which was in full force in his day, decided that to go completely subjective 
and deny this, uh, the existence of a subject-object distinction. I know I'm talking kind of high here, but the idea is, is that there is no such thing as objective truth. There is only what the subject experiences in his own mind. And so philosophically, um, when you trace back what's going on in the seeker-driven mu- movement, you find that all of the major thinkers and those who influence them come from the headwaters of the counter-enlightenment through Immanuel Kant, uh, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, Hegel, and I would even throw specifically into the mix uh, the ideas regarding community that come from uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, you know, who was uh, the, the philosopher whose philosophy was behind the, really the murderous things that occurred in the, uh, in the French Revolution. So... Uh... Uh, Immanuel Kant, uh, being a, a a good Lutheran Pietist, um, saw that enlightenment was an affront to the faith. In that, the enlightenment proposed that that uh, truth is discovered only by externals, and therefore uh-huh. it was an affront to uh, God, who can't be proved through externals. So, therefore, Kant's uh, answer to that was that okay, therefore, then truth can only be discovered not by externals, but only what is inside my head. That's correct. If you want to, if you kind of want to get an idea of what this looks like, you just go to the very, very first movie in the Matrix trilogy. You know, the first one, The Matrix, and it, and that's kind of Kant's philosophy put into movie form. You know, what you see isn't real; um, it's just something that you're experiencing all in your head, and um, and so you know, there's no such there, you know. There, it's almost Eastern in its way. The, you remember the, the, the where there's this kid meditating, you know, when he's... Mm-hmm. Uh, in the, the spoon. Uh, yeah, and he looks at the spoon and says, I can make it move because I just realized the spoon isn't there. Yeah, there mm-hmm. is no spoon. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's actually Immanuel Kant's philosophy. And I, I hate to say it this way, but as far as I'm concerned, Kant's response to the Enlightenment is the uh, is the philosophical equivalent of uh, of a basically a junior high kid having a temper tantrum and taking his uh, his ball and his bat and going home after losing a game uh, in baseball, you know his solution. I don't care what the Enlightenment says. This is what I feel, and that has to be true because I feel it. That's the idea. Now, does uh, Kierkegaard get mixed in here? Is he in some ways a furtherment or a reaction to Kant? Yes, what happens is you 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 have to ch- you, when you really trace this idea, you know, moving from Kant forward, um, it 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 picks up again uh, in Kierkegaard's philosophy. Uh, Kierkegaard was uh, kind of a proto existentialist, and the the basic idea here is is that um, you know Kant's major uh, not uh, not Kant but Kierkegaard's major uh, text that he liked to work with was Genesis 22, where Abraham was told to sacrifice Isaac. And so, you know, in, when you read Kierkegaard's writing on this, is this idea that God has asked him to do something contrary to reason, contrary to thought. And, you know, and so the only thing that real faith is left with is to make a leap into the darkness. And, you know, and, 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 you know regardless of what it is that your thinking and feeling and your reasoning tells you, you've just got to make this blind leap. That's, uh, that's, uh, Kierkegaard's idea, and he is and he is picking up on Kant's 
uh, epistemology is laid out in his critique of pure reason, and he's further developing it. What you see happening in uh, Europe in the counter-enlightenment is that each successive generation kind of picks up the project and adds their own pieces to it. So you see development in this anti-enlightenment, counter-enlightenment worldview. Um, and so you go from, you know, from Kant to, you know, Kant and Rousseau to Kierkegaard to Schopenhauer to, I think, Fritsch is, is his uh, name, to, uh, to Nietzsche, to Hegel, and then uh, to uh, Martin Heidegger. And, but the thing is, is that this anti-enlightenment worldview, you know, it ends up becoming the uh, the underpinning of uh, the fascists uh, in Europe, of uh, the Mussolini administration, as well as the, uh, the the National Socialists in Germany, the Nazis, and uh, all of these things have there's particular you know major pillars in their philosophy: the denial of the existence of the individual, that the community is the uh, is the organism of note, the community is the is the organic thing that exists. The individuals have no existence in time and space. That truth is not knowable. Something that we can we can subscribe to. Um, truth is something that is experienced by people as they're in conversation within community. All of these things. Uh, th- none of these ideas are new in post-modernity. They're just kind of new as far as their popularity in the United States, because in the United States and in uh, we've we have been. A nation that is highly influenced by the Enlightenment. In fact, our uh, entire constitutional system in the United States is based upon Enlightenment presuppositions, and all of those are being challenged now. And the challenges uh, come in the form of what's called postmodernity. But postmodernity isn't new. It's the, it's basically just a continuation of the anti-Enlightenment philosophers and their ideas that that have their genesis in, uh, late in the 18th century and 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 have. Uh, large portions of their worldview developed in the uh, in the nineteenth century and early twentieth. Uh, maybe you can help. This is maybe the one link that isn't quite matching up for me. Uh, maybe you can help me out. And, and I know you said this thought system is is irrational, so maybe that's just the answer. But um, it, it confuses me how um, truth can be discovered within the community if truth is internal, because there is some element of objectivity, um, even even if it's a, to a lesser form. In, in discovering truth as a community. In other words, if I'm in a community, uh, I'm dependent upon the community to discover what truth is, and that is something that is um, uh, told to me, but it's outside of me. Yes and no. Um, truth, is, listen to the language carefully. Truth, according to them, is experienced mm-hmm. in conversation within a community. Okay, okay, so the, the distinction is they're not being told what truth is; they're experiencing what truth is with the community. And so, in 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 an irrational worldview, the way tr- it, truth isn't taught using theses. In fact, um, they bristle. You know, uh, uh, they would the, somebody who's in this in this worldview bristles against the ninety-five theses because those are ninety-five statements of concise, objective <laughs> truth. They would say we've got to stop making assertions like that and putting, you know, doing theology in thesis form. That's ridiculous. Instead, we just we need to rather than focus on knowledge and reason and statements, we need to be in tune with what the Spirit wants us to understand. So it's better that we ask questions. Okay, the most important thing is questions. 
not not statements of knowledge and fact, but questions that help somebody experience and get in tune with internally with what the spirit is trying to teach them within their con within the, their participation within this particular community. Okay, you mentioned fascism. Um, how I mean, that's that's sort of the uh, that's sort of the argument stopper word. <laughs> how how is fascism yeah. properly defined? Fascism. We're going to defi- I'm going to define it according to worldview. You can argue that fascism is a political system, and yes, it is. It's it's a way of doing politics, but it's a way of doing politics that's based on a philosophical worldview. And so the major tenets of it being basically truth is not something that is uh, knowable. It's something that is experienced, um, that the individual doesn't exist, the community exists, that, um, that what really matters is not endless debate, but what really is important is action, taking action, making a difference, getting people to, uh, you know, to, per- you know, you know, to put aside all of the this reasoning stuff and talking about their individual rights. It's a reaction against uh, liberal democracy uh, as developed in the, uh, in the Enlightenment. And it's this idea that individuals are part of the community, the community's needs, and uh, transcend all individuals. And therefore, they have to, you know, basically the, the, the collective, the community tells the individual what they're to do. And individuals who do not... Uh, uh, who do not agree with the community, the leader in the community, and stuff like that? They are viruses, and since they don't have any inherent rights, um, you know, for, in order to maintain the health and protect the health of the community, we have the right to exterminate or eliminate those individuals who are a disease within the community. These are basic tenets of uh, of the fascist way of looking at things. So, what then is the chief goal of this worldview? Uh, there's an eschatological goal here. Um, you can almost say it's the uh, it's it's the creation of and the establishing of the kingdom of God here on earth. It's it, their way of reading the Lord's prayer. When you read um, uh, "Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven," the goal of the of this philosophy is the creation or establishing of the kingdom of God here on earth, visibly through our efforts, our means. So there's an eschatological uh, end game to all of this, and that's that somehow the world globally comes together as a community and establishes the kingdom of God here on earth, where there's no, no, more, no more need to, uh, to address and redress social justice problems, but the world becomes uh, a, a kind of a, a paradise on earth, if you would. So in the uh, in the aftermath then of World War One, uh, Germany is licking its wounds and asking what went wrong, and they they point to the evil liberal democracy that yep. that proposes the the, the individual rights, um, and 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 maybe this is where we we see the formation here. Uh, uh, but then uprises uh, from this time period a man by the name of Peter Drucker. Who who was Peter Drucker? Peter Drucker grew up in Vienna between World War One and World War Two. He he was uh, from a very well placed family, um, and his father would have dinner parties every Monday night at their home, and would entertain philosophers, political dignitaries, uh, people of you know, of who were poets and authors and playwrights. And uh, he was the habitue of a salon by a, uh, you know, that uh, was run by a, a family member, a, a family friend of theirs. And so he grew up 
in the middle of all of this conversation uh, where they're doing a philosophical uh, kind of debrief on what happened, what went wrong in the war. I mean, you've you got to understand from the point of view of somebody who lived in Austria or Germany or Italy at that time, uh, especially the Germans, the Germans couldn't understand why on earth they lost the war when the troops that were German were well into France. They were in. Uh, they were. They were. They were not. You know, Berlin wasn't sacked. They were in France uh, fighting there. So they figured, who on earth betrayed them that they would lose the war? And and you know, and Drucker himself, you know, was. Depend, you know, after the war, he was a young, uh, young uh, boy at the time. He was dependent upon uh, the, you know, uh, on aid societies to, you know, for his meals and stuff like that. So he grew up in all of this, and the, and all of the conversation centered around the, the 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 what was to blame for these this the loss of World War One was this liberal democracy and Enlightenment philosophy that broke people up into individuals where they felt no. They didn't have any uh, idea of sense of duty to the community and stuff like that, and uh, and he imbibed heavily in Kierkegaard, Rousseau, Kant, and uh, and other anti-enlightenment philosophers, and bought into that worldview as a whole. However, he did not share the anti-Semitism and uh, you know some of the more radical views. Of the National Socialists, so on the one hand he shared their worldview, but on the other he had significant um, philosophical differences with the National Socialists and, uh, of his time, and so um, you know he was looking for a different solution than the one that they had. So uh, by the time World War II comes around, Peter Drucker comes to America and gets a job at, at GM, and uh, yep. what's he try to do there? Uh, his goal at, Gen at General Motors was basic. Well, he, he, he kind of lays this out. There's, a, there's an article he wrote called The Unfashionable Kierkegaard. The Drucker Society says that he really uh, wrote the first draft on that in 1933, even though it wasn't published until the 40s. And in there, he basically claims that he understands what it is that the Nazis had done wrong. And that was is that they were materialists. They didn't recognize the existence <laughs> of, of the spiritual plane and that's what led to the atrocities that the that the Nazis had, you know, committed against humanity in exterminating six million people. And so he he's, he's convinced that uh, that their their basic ideas are right that the community is the thing that exists, the individual doesn't exist. Um, but what happened is is that because they didn't recognize this other invisible plane that human existence exists on, and that's the spiritual plane. And in this, and, and in eternity, there the individual supposedly exists. Because he figured this out by reading Kierkegaard, he's convinced that's the solution. So he comes to the United States and uh, is is doing a consulting gig for General Motors, and where he decides he's going to transform the workplace into community. So he's going to he's going to come up with a smaller communities, not community based on nations, but community around corporations. So the idea was is that he's going to he's he's setting about the creation of a new society. Based up where the smallest unit in society is a community or an organization, and this first place where he's experimenting with this is in uh, is in the business world at General Motors. And um, later he wrote he, in an interview he admitted that that was a mistake. He was wrong in trying to do that at work because that that really that's not the the right place to create community. And so uh, by the 1980s he switched gears from 
focusing on the the, uh, the corporate business world to create community, and instead focused on uh, volunteer organizations, 501c3s, and churches as the place where he wanted to create uh, these communities. And these communities are supposed to be the uh, the, the kind of like the apex. Uh, of where this new society was supposed to you know emerge the society that he was trying to make a society where the lowest uh, the smallest uh, measurement is not an individual human being but a, an organization or a community so whereas uh you know uh, prior prior to uh the industrial era where farmers were working together living in community they all had to help another out this this is sort of the ideal and then it right. was destroyed by individualistic Capitalism, um, uh-huh. and, and 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 Drucker wants to set out to recapture this idea. Uh, does he have yeah. any influence today? <laughs> does he have any influence today? <laughs> the question is, where does he not have influence? I think it'd be harder to find those places. And yeah, Drucker's ideas. Uh, Drucker took three uh, uh, disciples uh in the uh, in the church world and spent a lot of time pouring his ideas into them those major three disciples are Rick Warren, Bill Hybels and a gentleman by the name of Bob Buford of Leadership Network and um you know if you were to just measure the reach in the in in you know in the church uh, of of Warren, Hybels and Buford I think you would find that you know, it's harder to find a church that hasn't been influenced by them than it is to find a church that has been influenced. I think the vast majority of of uh, churches in the United States and in the Western world have been highly influenced by Peter Drucker and his concepts uh, without any understanding of uh, the philosophical worldview that comes along with it and what its major goals are. So uh, from the, the names you just mentioned, the disciples of, of, uh, of Drucker, we hear things like uh, deeds, not creeds, um, yep. or, or that the Lord loves diversity. Uh, what, what's, what are behind statements like this? Well, it's this idea, it's a denial of transcendent truth claims. This is part of this anti, uh, anti-enlightenment concept. So, so here's the idea, is, is that um, in, in, I'm, I'm going to use this kind of in like an like a uber-ecumenical way of thinking. In their way of thinking, listen, it's important that people are plugged into a faith community, but it doesn't matter which one. Okay, so a person can be experiencing God um, in a in a Lutheran church, and it's important that that within that community, the structure of that community re- remain intact because that's how that community identifies itself and and and, and its needs, and that's how it ex- that's an expression. But it, in the same time, a person can be a Muslim and in the Muslim community experience God. And so the important thing is that that, that Lutheran community and that Muslim community is focused on making the world a better place and helping people ha- have their lives transformed as they are members in those communities. But th- whatever the doctrines are, it just doesn't matter because God likes diversity, you know. See, and he his argument is if you look at you know out in the world, you know, if theologians were to rule the day, he says, then 
then uh, then they would argue that there's only correct one correct species of fly. But God made over 2,500 different species of flies. Therefore, that proves that God loves diversity. Therefore, it doesn't matter what doctrines you believe, as long as you're plugged into a community, God loves diversity, and you can experience God in community, in a Muslim community, in, uh, in a Lutheran community, a Methodist community, in a Buddhist community, or whatever. It, that, the, 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 the doctrines that are taught there don't matter as long as they're making the world a better place. Okay, so within this uh, concept of, of what you just mentioned and uh, the worldview that, that backs um, a Drucker and his disciples, we're now seeing uh, churches uh, be called not, not churches, but community of small groups, faith communities. Uh, what, uh-huh. What's a cellular church? A cellular church is that's kind of the antiquated term that when when this first kind of came on the scene 25 years ago or so cellular church was the language that was pitched that um, listen you know you know we've got to view our churches as organic community and then in in this understanding then you you got to understand the role of the pastor radically changes a pastor goes from somebody who ministers and teaches to somebody who leads and measures. And so the, the day-to-day task of, of teaching God's Word, administering the sacraments, all that kind of stuff, those all go by the wayside because the, there's really that's, he doesn't have time for that. He's got to be a leader. Uh, and I'm going to use a word, I'm going to use the German word here to kind of make the point. Um, that he has to become a Fuhrer. That's what the German word Fuhrer is, leader. So he has to become a Fuhrer. So his job is to cast the vision of where the community is supposed to go, you go in an ideal futurist, you know, five years from now, given that all things are, are good and this is the ideal future for our community in five years, this is where we need to go. And everyone's job then is to get to behind the vision of the pastor and to make that vision come about. So the day-to-day task of doing the work in the church doesn't fall on the pastor. He's the visionary. He's the one who sets the course, and he's the one who measures and holds people accountable. The job of making everything happen then goes to the individual, uh, to, uh, to the people within the community as they're broken up into small groups. And it's not uncommon in, uh, in seeker-driven churches that what happens is, is that the small group then, that's the smallest unit, it, not the individual, but the group is that within that within that group you're going you know somebody is going to be responsible for uh, those people are responsible for making hospital visits and and some churches uh, uh, the people uh, people in the small groups are responsible for actually putting on a funeral. So if somebody in the small group dies, it's not the pastor who presides at the funeral. It, it would actually be somebody in the small group who presides at the funeral. So that's the idea, is, is that this, the cellular church is, 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 is that's the other way of saying, a community of small groups. The small group is the smallest unit within those churches, not the individual. So it seems like uh, Peter Drucker would be pleased that, that, he, uh, that we've, we've achieved um, what, what he was after. Um, well, actually, remember what the end game is. The, the end game is not... The creation of all of these cellular churches. The, 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 his goal is the creation of a new society, mm, okay. a, a society of organizations. We still haven't got that yet because uh, you know in Western countries, especially in the United, in the United States, um, this this is still an emerging reality. It's not the it's not the true reality yet. And people like you stand in the way. <laughs> yeah, well, that's exactly right. I I'm considered to be a disease within. 
the body of Christ uh, by people in the Secret Driven Movement, which explains why I'm threatened with arrest when I show up at some of their events. <laughs> uh, I hear uh, quite frequently that uh, the church, we should go back to how the church originally was, that the church was a movement, not an institution. Does that play into this conversation? Yeah, absolutely, and that's absolutely a lie. Um, um, the church is an institution. It's instituted by Christ. And if you if you were to look at a corollary as to you know what the institution looks like, uh, you know, like Second uh, Corinthians makes it clear, the institution itself is embassy. Each congregation being an embassy outpost of the kingdom of God. It is an institution uh, where the pastor is one who holds an office within the institution, and there's particular duties that go with the office. And the church as a whole is, is called to disciple the nations. This is not a movement. Movement is, uh, is, literally turns the church into, you know, it, it, that's law talk, not gospel talk. I'm sorry. And movements, uh, this, this, is the com- this is the way the communists talk. This is the way the fascists talk. The communist movement, the fascist movement, everybody has to get caught up in the movement. It's all about action, it's all, you know, and uh, not about proclamation or anything like that. So, yeah, no, they, they turn the church into movement where the church is absolutely an institution, and it's, at, and it's, it's wrong-headed and evil at its core, if you ask me. seems like uh, one of the main differences between those two things would be um, would be the role of authority. In, a, in an institution, authority is given by the one who instituted it, so that mm-hmm. if the church is an institution, uh, pastors are called uh, to speak in the sin by the command of Christ in, in the topic of forgiveness and the retaining of sins. In, uh-huh. a, mo- in a movement, though, um, it doesn't really have a given authority, but it has a power that must be taken. Um, right. And and. and- Understand this: that the role of the pastor. Then, uh, it, it, I think our our confessional document, the power and primacy of the Pope, uh, written by Luther, is a great document to start with to kind of tease out where the where the uh, seeker driven movement goes wrong. Because what you have literally going on in these congregations is, is you have rather than one Pope uh, who you know, who 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 sits in the uh, the the office of Antichrist. What happens is, is that the, the, that's now broken into individual communities. So sitting at the top of the pyramid are all of these little popes who, who are literally speaking ex-cathedra. You know, God has given me a vision for where he wants this community to be and how we're to do church. And if you challenge the vision, you are challenging God himself. And so what's happened is, is that the office of Antichrist no longer is limited to um, the individual seat, is, you know, in Rome uh, of the in the, of the office of the Pope, that has now been broken into little pieces and distributed into uh, into Protestant churches in these seeker-driven churches, where that, that where the individual Führer sits and speaks ex cathedra as he's received a direct vision from God, and to challenge him is to challenge God, and you become then a, an illness in the community that must be uh, eradicated. So if, if uh, I'm not, by the way, but if I was an aspiring uh, uh, leader of, of one of these churches, um, I would be looking to, uh, to receive some sort of a, a vision from, from God, a, a vision that, is, that cannot be questioned, but a vision that I, that I uh, give to those below me, and they then must uh, uh, conform to this vision. Uh, Absolutely. And, sec- and secondly, be uh, one of a dynamic and influence so that through my influential talks, they will experience truth. 
Okay, got it. I got now. I have the checklist. <laughs> yeah, in fact, what I would recommend if somebody wants to kind of read more about this, the book to pick up on this is uh, called Transitioning by a gentleman by the name of Dan Sutherland, and the forward was actually written by uh, Rick Warren. I have uh, both the book as well as the uh, the lecture version of this of this program, and here's the idea is that the seeker-driven movement specifically teaches that a pastor must prove to God that he is worthy to receive a vision from God. And his worthiness is based upon um, his prayer and his fasting and him demonstrating to God that he's truly serious and sincere about receiving the vision from God as to where God wants to take their individual community. And once God is satisfied that the that this potential leader has demonstrated through his obedience, through prayer and fasting, that he's uh, serious to receive this, then God will give him the vision. And the, the, the degree of clarity and how much of the vision God will give is, again, based upon his obedience. And once that pastor receives that vision from God, his job is to assemble a team to implement the vision, to cast the vision, to make the vision come about. And anybody who opposes the vision, according to Dan Sutherland, Okay, and you got to understand that his his church transitioning seminar for years has been the official seminar used in the in the purpose driven uh, community uh, to transition churches from being um, traditional churches to being purpose driven. If you disagree with them, then you are called a wolf, and according to Dan Sutherland, you must shoot the wolf. That's a direct quote. Wow, um... that's in his. Uh, uh, in his uh, chapter and called Dealing with Opposition. You are to shoot the wolf, according to him. Okay, so you mentioned um, that uh, the the small group is the smallest unit, and let's see yep. if that comes out in Mark Driscoll's preaching. Because here's the truth, friends. If you love Jesus, you have to love the church. Because Christ gave himself for the church. And what can happen is sometimes we think it's just me and Jesus. It's not. The majority of the books of the Bible are written to churches, not individuals. So the application is often for the church, not just for the individual. There are individual applications, but it's us together. And we even teach our kids falsely, Jesus loves who? Me. This I know. We should sing Jesus loves us. This we know. All right. Uh, Chris, what do you think of that? <laughs> uh, echoes of Catherine Jefford Shorey, uh, uh, the, uh, the head of the Episcopalian Church, and her uh, her keynote from the 2009 Church Convention come to uh, mind here, where she said that uh, you know we've got to overcome the great Western heresy of individual salvation. That's that's <laughs> straight up anti enlightenment. That is straight up anti enlightenment. And notice that Driscoll says we are teaching our kids falsely when we teach them to sing Jesus loves me, this I know, and yet. Scripture doesn't make a dichotomy between the salvation of an individual versus the salvation of the, of the church, the body of Christ, collectively. It talks in both terms very clearly. And to drive a wedge and say that we're teaching our children falsely, to say Jesus loves me as an individual, that's just straight up, not only is it false doctrine, that is straight up anti-enlightenment fascist philosophy right there. Uh, I I wonder what happens when um, uh, someone comes into a church like this and they're looking to grow deeper in the Lord's Word. This is what Perry Noble uh, would call such a person. 
You say, Perry, what about the jackass in the church? The jackass in the church is the person that always screams, I want to go deeper. You know what I tell people that say that around here? You're only as deep as the last person you served. You want to talk deep? Let's go check your tithing record and see how deep you are. Deep? Deep? Most Christians are, uh, John Maxwell said it, most Christians are educated way beyond their level of obedience anyway. What you're really saying is you want me to stand on the stage and confuse the heck out of you so you don't have to apply what I teach on Sundays. I could do that. I want more worship. You got six other days. If you were full of Jesus when you walked in here, it wouldn't matter to you how much we sang. Okay, uh, what's behind Perry Noble's uh, comments there? Again, that's the, that is the anti-enlightenment, and I hate to say it, fascist uh, worldview that um, it doesn't, you know, sitting around and discussing theory is, is a complete waste of time. What's needed is action, and how that plays out in the church then is this idea, we are not going to sit around and go deep into biblical doctrines and exegete uh, the proper hermeneutics of a particular passage and talk about doctrines. The important thing is action, obedience, and that's, what, that's what at, the heart, at the heart of Maxwell's comment. Most people are educated well beyond their level of obedience anyway. So the idea is, is we're not going to sit here and go deep into a biblical text and talk about doctrine, because what's important is, is that you get your rear end in gear and get obedient and start doing action. And let, let's put the serious garbage behind us. Who needs it? The important thing is we need to, we've, got, we've got a kingdom of God to build here on the earth, and uh, this discussion about doctrine and theology is getting in the way of the mission of the church to create the kingdom of God here on earth. So get busy, get obedient, and get involved, and stop complaining about how, uh, how shallow the teaching is. You're, edu- you're educated way beyond your level of obedience anyway, so you just need to listen to what the Spirit is saying and uh, get busy. Yeah, that was. Uh, I, I thought that Maxwell quote was very revealing. Uh, that most people are educated beyond their level of obedience, so that the, the purpose of of uh, coming in and listening to the leader for thirty minutes is not to be, as we would say um, in in the church, uh, to to come and 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 have our faith fed and nourished, uh, to be told the things of God, to be uh, that that God's word would be efficacious, that we would be. Uh, uh, struck down by his law, but but uh, given life and, and brought up in the gospel. No, in, in this idea, the the thirty minute, forty minute presentation of the of the leader is simply to motivate or to compel one to to do things. Yep. Yeah, that's the that's the idea. This talk about the utter. Com- uh, this is not even a, a, a confusing of law and gospel because at this point the proclamation of the gospel doesn't have a place because the gospel doesn't spur you to do anything. The gospel is something that's received. It's something that's believed. Well, we don't have room for that. We need, we need, we've got action. You've got to get busy, crack, you know, get, become part of the movement to create the kingdom of God here on earth. And so gospel proclamation would be considered meaningless and having no real function except for to uh, get people to sign up to become part of the movement, so they can get busy, get busy becoming obedient and and uh, making the kingdom of God here on earth. All right, uh, uh, Chris, we are um, 
in 2012, it seems like every church um, is is swept away by this this worldview, this this philosophical thought. Uh, what are we to do in an, in an age of today? Uh, well, it's pretty simple. I mean, uh, the the mission hasn't changed: make disciples of all nations, uh, baptizing, teaching all. So, you know, the job of a of a pastor hasn't changed. The job of the church hasn't changed, right? The pastoral office is called to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, forgive people their sins, uh, feed people the body and blood of Jesus Christ, to pray. Uh, all of that is the same. Nothing has changed. I don't. It doesn't matter what the date that you're writing on the on your check says. It doesn't matter if you know, when you sign your check it says 2012, 2015, or whatever. The, 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 we're to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Tell the world that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them. And to teach all. That means sound doctrine. You know, uh, you know that's what Paul writes about in Titus, that you know, an elder in the church is to uh, be able to teach what's in accord with sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed, period. This is what we're to be busy doing um, until the day when Jesus decides to return in glory to judge both the living and the dead. He will establish uh, his kingdom on earth, and right now the, the kingdom of God on earth uh, is found in the church, uh, and it's the kingdom of the forgiveness of sins. And soon there's a day when we will see Jesus face to face, and those who continue in sin and unbelief will be cast into the lake of fire. That's that's Jesus' idea, but you have to understand this. Jesus, in, in, in Matthew 18, says, All authority has been given to me. He's already on the throne. He's already in control. And I think this, this idea that these guys have is actually a tacit denial that uh, Jesus currently is king. We've been talking with Chris Roseborough. He's host of the Internet radio program Fighting for the Faith and uh, captain of Pirate Christian Radio. Check out FightingForTheFaith.com and also PirateChristianRadio.com. Chris, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Evan.